0: Welcome to Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This April 7th, 2020 edition, episode 137 of Nature Bats Last comes to you live from Rakino Island in Aotearoa and also from Central Florida, Florida in the United States. This is Kevin Hester and I'm joined by Professor Guy McPherson. In addition today, we have a special guest. Guy, will you do the honours,
1: please? Thank you, Kevin. Today, we are delighted to have Paul Gunter on this show. Paul is a co-founder of the Clamshell Alliance Anti-Nuclear Group. An energy policy analyst and activist, he has been a vocal critic of nuclear power for more than 30 years. And as a result, he has been arrested at Seabrook Station Nuclear Power Plant for nonviolent civil disobedience on several occasions. Paul worked as the director of the Reactor Watchdog Project for Nuclear Information and Resource Service for almost 20 years, and in 2007, he joined Beyond Nuclear as their nuclear reactor specialist. He has made many national and international television, radio, and conference appearances, and he is often quoted in the press. In 2008, Gunter was awarded the Jane Bagley Lehman Award from the Tides Foundation for Outstanding Achievements in, quote, the fight against nuclear power. Paul, welcome to Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network.
0: Thank you very much. It's great to have you on the show today, Paul. Thank you for your time. I do have a number of questions for you. My first is, as we stand here today, what is the most pressing issue you see on the nuclear front?
2: Wow, there are so many, but uh, the the list sort of heads up with the aging of nuclear power stations uh, all around the world. Do you understand that this is a 1960s vintage technology, um, where there there are very many uh, harsh operational environments in a nuclear power plant, including uh, radiation that can change the character of metal, make it more brittle. Uh, there's, uh, in, in, in tremendous heat, pressure, uh, vibration. Uh, these are all acting together, uh, and can, uh, introduce, uh, cracks and corrosion. And, um, you know, that is, uh, those are all uh, cumulative effects that uh, eventually wear and tear on safety systems so there's this struggle that is constantly pitting uh, nuclear utility profit margins against n- the nuclear industry's safety margins and um, more times than not uh, the uh, production margins are winning out for example right now pressing us today is this COVID-19 pandemic and uh, that has some very direct effects on nuclear power plant operations. Uh, power plant crews are not um, immune to the pandemic virus and yet uh, nuclear power stations are not passive facilities. They need the constant alert and vigilant, uh, operators, uh, but, um, you know, we can, we're already seeing, uh, COVID-19 start to take effect on plant operations, um, and, uh, the, uh, station operators are falling ill to this very debilitating virus. And it's cutting into the margins of, uh, workers. Uh, who are there on on site, what we're seeing is that the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and other regulatory agencies around the world are compensating or making plans to compensate for a diminishing workforce that falls ill to the pandemic uh, by uh, relaxing enforcement of regulations and licensing agreements. For example, uh, workers are, in order to protect against chronic fatigue, there are technical special, uh, technical specifications within all these nuclear power stations that put limits on the amount of, um, overtime that a worker can be in a control room, for example, and uh, within the last few weeks with the upgrading of this pandemic, we're seeing the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission relax standards so that uh, workers in control rooms are now looking at to be able to operate uh, reactors on 12-hour shifts for uh, two weeks uh, at a run. And um, uh, that is a that is a violation of their uh, operating license agreement uh, to protect against worker fatigue but because um the industry plans is making plans to be so pressed by this pandemic that they have already gotten blanket exemptions from the uh safety regulator to um relax those worker those fitness for duty requirements so and the same is true for uh you know while the center for disease control is recommending um social distancing for nuclear power plant workers just as they are for every other industry or population we're seeing the new the nuclear regulatory commission um press forward on refueling nuclear power stations which brings in can bring in a thousand workers from around the country on into communities surrounding nuclear power stations so that they can refuel them for a power agenda but at the same time they're relaxing safety margins um using the CDC uh guidance for um uh, population distancing, um, so that they can um, delay safety inspections, delay repairs for as long as uh, 24 months. So th- we're seeing uh, th- the industry and the regulator talk out both sides of their mouth uh, with regard to promoting production agendas, protecting profit margins, and at the same time, allowing exemptions and not enforcing regulations so that they are eroding away um, safety margins.
1: Thank you for that response, Paul. If you're listening live, please call in with questions or comments for Paul and us. Our toll-free number is 888-874-4888 in the states. And zero one one six zero five five six two five one one nine. Elsewhere, these numbers are included at the bottom of my latest post at the Nature Bats Last blog, guymcpherson.com. dot com. Before we get too far down the road, I'd like to acknowledge Mimi German, sometime guest on this show, providing for providing fodder for my questions, and in some cases, the questions themselves. Paul, let's start with the worst case scenario, and it seems like we're on that path. And maybe it'll get better from there. What is the worst-case scenario? Does it involve, for example, people people working 12-hour shifts for two weeks at a time? And, and what else could possibly go wrong? And in your opinion, where are we headed if we pursue the worst-case scenario? I mean, I can't even imagine a bus driver, for example, or an airplane pilot, commercial airplane pilot, pilot being allowed to work. 12-hour shifts for weeks at a time and have that be called safe. And yet here we have systems that impact everybody in the world, and apparently we can have really extended work shifts for a long period of time.
2: Well, it's uh, really a, uh, a culmination of um, relaxation of uh, – safety standards, and licensing requirements that worries us most right now. Um, you know, um, let me just say, first of all, that there are, right now, there are fires burning around the Chernobyl nuclear power station in Ukraine uh, from uh, uh, an accident that occurred there on April 26th, 1986 when the Chernobyl nuclear power station during a routine um, uh, experimental operation uh they uh, exploded a nuclear power station uh that has that sent radiation globally um, there um, since 1986 there've been these um, uh, huge uh, uh exclusion zones uh in uh Ukraine Belarus uh southern Russia uh and contamination that has that still has food restrictions in place uh all across Europe and even into uh into the United Kingdom uh Turkey um, and elsewhere um so the the worst case scenario is in fact a, a culmination of this these relaxations of uh, standards to protect against worker fatigue um then com- combining um, the the reduction of um, the protection against uh component failure um, by re- relaxing inspection requirements um, and um, the ongoing aging of nuclear power stations that is causing embrittlement cracking corrosion fatigue um so you know what we're watching for is um these gathering clouds of a perfect storm um where um uh, the pandemic uh in this case uh could reduce worker populations uh create um, uh, an environment where mistakes combined with uh, mechanical failures uh, can cause a nuclear accident. This is, in fact, what happened at Three Mile Island here in the United States uh, back on March 28, 1979. There was a mechanical failure at 4 a.m. in the morning when the crew was not at its most alert. And there were worker errors that uh, exacerbated... The mechanical failure and caused a partial meltdown of the, the nuclear uh, power plant there near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And time and time again, we see how fatigue and mechanical failure can coincide, uh, to cause a number of accidents, um, in, in nuclear power plants. So, um, you know, this is what we're, we're now vigilant for. But on top of all of this, the nuclear industry is not only aging and deteriorating in a material condition, but it's failing economically. And so the combination of the um, loss of um, its economic um, viability – uh, means that the industry and the regulators are cutting corners to aid the the failing economics, but at the cost of cutting corners on safety and security at nuclear power stations. So we're seeing, um, you know, we have to be vigilant as we see layer upon layer upon layer of um, – adverse conditions again fatigue material condition economic failure these are all piling up now that should a natural event occur during this time an earthquake um, a security event um, any one of these can constitute the last straw on the nuclear industry's um, reliability and causing failure and cascading into an accident, like we saw at Fukushima Daiichi um, on March 11th, 2011, where an earthquake of severe um, at a severe level caused an unprecedented tsunami that then wiped out a vulnerable nuclear power station uh, in Fukushima. Where they lost the electrical grid from the earthquake, then a tsunami wiped out of the backup emergency power at Fukushima Daiichi, and that resulted in three nuclear meltdowns. And uh, those consequences persist today.
0: I, I have some um, very pressing issues that I think that no one's talking about at uh, in the Japanese nuclear industry, where after Fukushima Daiichi, all of their um, nuclear plants were uh, shut down. And whilst they were shut down, they had absolutely minimum amounts of maintenance done on them because for obvious reasons with the nuclear industry, money, same old story. And now one by one, they're starting to, they're restarting those nuclear power stations in, in Japan. And there's been a lot of metal fatigue that's taken place with them being shut down. So I think that those time bombs that they're restarting now are more dangerous today than they were before they were shut down. What are your thoughts on that and the metal fatigue component of that?
2: Well, the, um, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accidents, um, in 2011, in fact, uh, prompted, um, the Japanese government and the Japanese nuclear regulators to, um, go back and reformulate the way they were regulating. I mean, what, what, uh, Fukushima disclosed was, um, the, um, uh, what, we're, what we commonly refer to as regulatory capture, and that is that the nuclear industry, in fact, runs the nuclear regulator. And uh, here in the United States, for example, 90% of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission's operating budget comes from licensing fees to uh, from the industry to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, so um, you know there's a there's a, a, a just by the um, the licensing fees alone, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission sort of has its hands tied behind its back in that they can't do. Um, sweeping actions that might require shutting down all of uh, the U.S. reactors that are like the Fukushima uh, reactors, these general electric uh, boiling water reactors, because if they, if they shut down reactors with design faults, then they lose much of their operating budget. So there are these built in Controls where the industry can call the shots, um, and that was certainly the case in, um, in Japan. Um, in fact, um, you know the, the Fukushima was built in the early 1970s, and in order to make the cost of building the six units at Fukushima, the Ichi more affordable um, They, the, the operator, Tokyo Electric Power Company, um, lowered the natural tsunami walls around the the Fukushima, uh, plant. So in, during the construction, they brought down the grade at which the plant was started by 80 feet. So they lowered the construction site down to 80 feet and they, um, fr- from the, 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 the dunes and the land formations, the natural geography around Fukushima, that was removed in order to make it more cost efficient to pump seawater into the cooling systems for Fukushima Daiichi. So they made it more vulnerable and they, the, the regulator, um, cooperated in that they said, and with their probability assessments, they said, you know, we'll never see a, a, a tsunami, um, hit Fukushima that's any higher than 13 feet to 15 feet. Well, the tsunami that hit there in uh on march eleventh uh, was fifty feet a fifty foot wall of water that uh, destroyed uh, safety systems and backup power systems there and it it's those kinds of decisions that um, made the uh, the plant uh, actually all of uh, Japan's nuclear power stations vulnerable but Regulatory capture is not unique to the Japanese system, Um, and certainly we're uh, increasingly concerned about the same kind of um, relaxation of uh, regulations around U.S. nuclear power stations that can make them vulnerable to things like earthquakes, uh, flood protection, fire protection, security uh, um, uh, measures, um, uh, the, to address aging, um, um, and certainly metal fatigue is one of those areas. And to give you an example about how metal fatigue uh, is a concern today, uh, as a result of the COVID-19 um, pandemic, the um, in order um, – you know, at the same time, they're allowing these, uh, these large super crews to come in from all over the country to do refueling operations while the plant is shut down. The, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the industry are going to allow, um, operators like at Indian Point or, um, uh, near New York or, uh, at, um, the uh, Comanche peak in Texas or Turkey point near Miami um, to relax inspection of um, reactor uh, parts like steam generators that undergo extreme heat and pressure uh, as they generate steam from the atomic um fissioning process. And, um, these, uh, these reactors, particularly Comanche Peak, Braidwood in Illinois, and, um, Turkey Point in Florida, you know, they're required during these refueling outages to do inspections of these, um, vital components like steam generators to look for cracks in, in, um, thousands of tubes that are involved in, um, Heat transfer from the reactor to the turbine, and um, they're, they're required to inspect these steam generators every 48 months. Well, these reactors are now down for refueling, but the utilities are saying, "Well, we don't want to bring those crews in now for inspection uh, to protect uh, them from uh, COVID exposure." So. On the one hand they're bringing in thousands to do refueling and on the other hand they're going to keep them out so that they can expedite bringing these power plants back online without the required inspections and let them operate um, another, another um, uh, two years um, so these are some concerns where You know, they're juggling things like um, inspections and repairs on metal fatigue um, and um, that can cause accidents like what we saw at Fukushima.
1: Paul, it seems that worker fatigue, metal fatigue, the occasional tsunami, squirrels, balloons, frozen power lines, and floods can cause nuclear power plants to melt down. Can you walk us through the process, starting with whatever your favorite source is? And, and then I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question, but I'd like you to answer it. What's the backup plan?
2: Well, um, the, um, the concern is, is that, I mean, fundamentally, nuclear power is an inherently dangerous technology. There's nothing passively safe. About nuclear power. First of all, um, every nuclear power station around the world requires 100% of its power for all safety systems, as redundant as they are, um, to get its power from the electrical grid. So the the, the electrical grid is the first uh, and most important um, safety feature of nuclear power stations. So if for any reason the electrical grid goes down, be it um, a tornado or a hurricane or a saboteur, or in one case even uh, in the Midwest as uh has been pointed out a squirrel caused an electrical grid failure the power is automatically shut off to safety systems at nuclear power stations the grid the um with the grid failure the uh the backup is then um um emergency uh power systems from um, emergency diesel generators. It could also be an electrical dam, um, uh, a hydroelectrical dam next to the nuclear power station. But, um, while the plant is now shut down, uh, it's still a lot like having, um, a cast iron skillet in an oven. You know, even when you shut down the oven, uh, the cast iron remains extremely hot and that's the case for nuclear power stations and that residual heat has to be managed in order to keep the nuclear fuel from melting down so these emergency diesel generators for example uh will um power up um to keep cooling recirculating through uh these these um uh nuclear reactors and then you're re- you're requiring um, the the cooling systems to reliably operate you're 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 hoping that uh for example the emergency diesel generator uh fuel tanks um, aren't flooded uh which would introduce uh water uh, that could choke off power to the emergency diesel generators and then you're sort of in the same kind of situation that there was at Fuku- Fukushima where their emergency diesel generators were flooded by that tsunami uh, well then you have a backup of on-site um, um emergency batteries that again um are only there to keep safety systems going after the reactors are shut down to keep cooling going but um with the loss of the grid you lose safety systems so priority systems kick in and with the loss of emergency diesel generators uh, more safety systems are lost and even a narrower margin of priority systems are remaining operational Uh, to keep the most vital operations for cooling going. But emergency backup batteries are only typically there for four to eight hours. And since Fukushima, some of those systems have been upgraded, but still um, there are um, concerns that you can lose all of those backup systems as was demonstrated at Fukushima Daiichi. Ultimately, your last, um, what they call defense in depth measure around nuclear power plants is, uh, evacuation. Here in this situation, let's just remember that if for some reason, um a cascade of, of failure starts uh that the evacuation the last line of defense doesn't apply around nuclear power stations where large populations are, are already uh locked down um because of the pandemic so you know, we've got a situation now where the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is relaxing its regulations um, uh, um, and uh, allowing plants to uh, operate outside of compliance with their operating licenses, knowing that the, uh, the, ultimately the evacuation emergency plan isn't going to work during a
0: pandemic um Paul, I'd like to uh, in, inject a little bit into that de- uh, debate where I've got a high voltage switching and protection qualification from the London Electricity Board. And I've had a lot of uh, experience with complex electrical systems. And in all my decades of being involved in that industry, I never once met an electrical system that didn't fail. And that's where I've always been, anti-nuclear, because of the consequences of having all your eggs in one basket and relying so much on these complex systems. Can we just move on now to another subject that's dear to my heart, and that's anti-nuclear activists whistle and whistleblowers. And one of the inspirations for me in, in my journey, in my anti-nuclear journey, was Karen Silkwood. I firmly believe that the, the nuclear industry murdered Karen. What are you, what's your take on what happened to her?
2: Well, we, we share that concern that, um, uh, Karen Silkwood, who worked for, uh, Kerr McGee in a, uh, plutonium processing facility, uh, in, uh, Cimarron, Oklahoma, um, was um intercepted uh on her way to talk to the new york times and deliver uh documents that we believe would have shown evidence of the um illegal and secret transfer of plutonium um smuggling of plutonium um possibly to the Israeli government for the production of the first nuclear weapons there in Israel. And um, this, this, however, Karen's uh, scheduled rendezvous with the New York Times was cut short by a single uh, car crash that uh, later uh, showed um, signs that that her vehicle was driven off the road um in into a fatal crash um and that the documents uh, that had been um initially spotted by state police who had arrived on the scene were were later removed um and never made their way into the public realm but um uh i've known um personally similarly um uh workers who uh, were involved in whistleblower, uh, complaints, um, who were nearly electrocuted, uh, before they could make their claims publicly known while they were on the job, uh, that they believed, uh, were, uh, deliberate, uh, acts to, uh, uh, shut them up, uh, in the most dramatic way. Uh, so, um, uh you know we're uh staunch advocates of whistleblower protection um the, the, these are the ways that you know you you want to protect the anonymity uh of whistleblowers um to protect them not only from um harm but harassment and intimidation so that uh this again inherently dangerous industry can be as transparent as possible because you want safety to be paramount and not a production agenda, uh, that can drive workers, uh, to the point of, uh, error by fatigue or by mistake. Um, but also allowing, um, uh, you know, putting workers in a position of where they're, they're supposed to shut up about problems that they see uh, in their line of work uh, that could uh, cause failures uh, in system structures and components leading to a catastrophic accident.
1: I think what you're hinting at is the public relations approach. And as nearly as I can tell, the PR approach with nuclear power plants is nearly identical to the public relations approach for President Trump and COVID-19. Apparently, there's no need to change a model that works. Can you walk us through the PR of nuclear power? Who benefits? And how can we see through the smoke and mirrors of the public relations industry around nuclear power?
2: Well, um, the the whole idea of, um, again, the nuclear industry running... The, regular, the regulatory body uh, this regulatory capture uh, is is driven primarily by um, public relations where um, you know initially in the when the nuclear industry was was born in the 1950s the public re- relation gimmick at that time was, that the that nuclear power was the peaceful atom and in fact uh, just before President Eisenhower in his 1953 speech to the United Nations where he introduced the term the peaceful atom in 1952 the year before the The U.S. Atomic Energy Commission introduced a white paper that included corporations like Monsanto, Union Carbide, Detroit Edison, um, uh, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, Commonwealth Edison, a whole host of um, U.S. industrialists, power producers that. Uh, where the Atomic Energy Commission and the industry agreed that they would collaborate um, to um, generate plutonium uh, for nuclear weapons development through the cogeneration of um, electricity from the excess heat from making nuclear weapons that could then go to make steam and make electricity too cheap to meter. So the original plan was dual-purpose reactors that would first and foremost bolster the nuclear weapons um, development of plutonium through the fissioning of the atom... And in the, the byproduct would be co generated heat for electricity. That was um, the initial plan in nineteen fifty two. By nineteen fifty three that transferred into the peaceful atom.
0: Atomic oh, weapons yeah, there development is, they're as cunning as ditch rats these people. Hey, can we can we go back to Fukushima Daiichi for a moment, please? We regularly hear about the 300 tons of irradiated water that's accumulating at the plant every day. But few, but few media outlets mention that three coriums have escaped primary and possibly secondary containment and are now exposed to the atmosphere. I don't, I don't see anybody talking about the fact that those coriums are emitting ionizing radiation into the air 24-7. What is your thoughts on that?
2: Well, the, you know, in fact, uh, our understanding is the cores have essentially disappeared. Nobody really knows where they are. You know, we'll concur that they burned through the reactor pressure vessels um, and exited out the bottom. Um, it's also likely that they um, burned uh, through portions, if not through, the concrete floors of those containments. Um, but um, you know, Kevin, they've not been able to get even a robot close to those uh, radioactive, those molten cores. Um, the, the 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 robotics have essentially burned out. You know, we have um, technology has has had some some um, inklings that the uh, that the cores um, are 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 not where they w- were supposed to be, but um, they're um, they are you know right now water pouring off of the mountains uh, behind oh. Fukushima Daiichi. Um, <clears throat> Are um, you know filtering through groundwater into the, the wreckage site and uh, mixing with the radioactive contaminants there, and are being pumped off um, into huge tank farms that are growing day by day um, and running out of space. Uh, and this has been true ever since uh, the accident in 19. 19- or in uh, 2011 uh there've been some um filtration operations uh to take out uh, radioactive nucleides um <clears throat> that have been get- that have been on again and off again during the um uh, this time frame um <clears throat> but uh, we've got uh, thousands of tanks um that are filled with um radioactively contaminated water that the, um, Japanese nuclear industry right now is trying to get permission just to dump into the Pacific ocean and the fishing communities around Fukushima Daiichi are stridently opposing those, um, those plans. But the government, um, again, um, we believe is still captured by the industry are still moving towards those um essentially unrestricted releases of of um uh, tremendous amounts of radioactive water from these thousands of tanks uh back into the ocean uh so um you know this is going to pre- these uh these these melted cores that are no longer contained are going to present principally uh sources of contamination for groundwater uh that and cooling water that is constantly needed to circulate over these rea- these molten reactor cores to keep them from going critical again so that's primarily the main source of radiological contamination that's that's happening now we frankly we've not seen um tremendous amounts of radioactive uh, offgassing into the atmosphere uh post fukushima but what we really what we do see is that those initial explosions um tr- uh, allowed tremendous releases of radioactivity into the atmosphere uh that resulted in fallout that uh, blanketed um, much of eastern Japan. um, And uh, that fallout is still in um, forested areas. Uh, It's still uh, in, uh, you know, some areas have been what they call decontaminated, where they've taken the topsoil off. They've put it into these huge black plastic bags, but then they've just stacked the bags up. There's really no place, even when the contamination is remediated, there's no place for it to go. But even these, um, areas that have been decontaminated, uh, by removal of the, of the topsoil are constantly being recontaminated. Um, and, um, you know, by runoff from, uh, rains and, and, um, um, cyclones that, uh, that wash radioactivity, uh, out of these wooded areas, these forested areas, these mountain areas, and then recontaminate areas that have been mitigated. So, uh, the, the, the government and the, uh, inclusion with the industry there, they're trying to force people, um, that, uh, The the tens of thousands that were evacuated following the accident, they're trying to force them now back onto these contaminated lands and uh, essentially to say everything's just okay.
1: We often hear and read that small modular reactors, SMRs, are the greatest thing since sliced bread. That leads to two questions. What was the greatest thing before sliced bread? And are SMRs really as good as we often hear?
2: Well, I think that we all need to remember that uh, that initially the um, the nuclear industry was small modular reactors. They were the, – the design model was small modular reactors. Um, we had um, – um, you know, these these early reactors were less than 100 megawatts. And um, they, uh, because they were so small um, and didn't produce a lot of power, uh, the argument became that we needed large economy of scale uh, to become more economically efficient. So... The the small reactors were phased out, and the large reactors, instead of 100 megawatts, for example, um, they became a uh, thousand megawatts, ten times the size of um, of uh, the um, you know even uh, even larger uh, 1,400 megawatts. Um, so the um, um the 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 economy of scale uh, resulted in um the revelation that what was too expensive to build at uh small levels was even more expensive to build uh at at the large level so um fully half of the reactors ordered in the 1960s through the 19 um uh as 1979 um, were um, uh, resulted in, in economic failure and um, so um, now you know they're trying to change again the the public relations argument uh that the idea that um, um, small is now beautiful again And, uh, however, uh, the change that they're talking about now is to build a huge factory complex to automate the construction of these SMRs on conveyor belts where they would essentially at the end of the factory would roll out a modular reactor that could then be transported directly to the site of operation and then you put together um, one con- one control room that could operate 10 or 20 of these small modular reactors uh so you still have uh the concern for uh you know huge um, nuclear facilities where you have 10 or 20 100 100 megawatt reactors um, uh, in, uh in you know all operating off the same control room um, uh but uh it's going to be even more expensive to uh to build these factories um, and uh you know the the concern here and the reality is that renewable energy from wind and solar primarily uh, but coupled with energy efficiency and conservation this is what the um 21st century has developed as the most economically reliable dependable safe and efficient way for new generating capacity this is what's happening and the uh they're premising these small modular reactors uh these huge factories to be built uh when they're not even economically competitive with um with uh wind turbines or uh utility grade solar uh industries or um you know energy efficiency applications at residential commercial and industrial levels uh, tesla's uh, sparks nevada factory is now uh, about to roll out in a factory scenario um huge amounts of utility grade batteries that uh, on the order of 250 megawatts per battery that can store uh, um solar and wind power uh, for utility operation to, um, you know, smooth out the intermittency that uh, is argued as the, the bottleneck for renewables. So this is happening now, and uh, yet the small modular reactor idea um, is still going to be the most expensive, and it's not going to have uh, the ability to compete with renewable
0: energy. Thanks thanks very much for that, Paul. I, we're sort of coming close to the end of the show, and I have one last question that I'd like to uh, run by you. When Fukushima Daiichi um, melted down and the generators failed to start and the spent fuel pools were getting hot and evaporating the coolant water, the, the Jap- Japanese brought in fire brigades, and they... they they pumped salt water into those spent fuel pools to cool them down. and they still tell us that they're soon they're going to remove those fuel cells from the fuel fuel assemblies from those pools. Can you describe for me what you how you would see a spent fuel pool full uh, spent fuel pool fire igniting and what that would be like? and we'll have to make it quick because uh, we're coming to the end of the show unfortunately.
2: Okay, well thank you so much. But um, you know our main concern is uh for spent fuel particularly. And and let's let's be let's be clear. It's not spent in any shape or form. It's ir- highly irradiated. So this this highly radioactive um, fuel, um, irradiated fuel uh is when it comes out of the reactor um, during these refueling operations that are going on right now at 10 reactors around the the United States, it comes out extremely thermally hot. And this is when the irradiated fuel is most vulnerable to a loss of coolant accident. If you lose cooling water uh, for these irradiated fuel um, pools, um, it can it, it 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 can if it's exposed to the air it can catch fire and um, it will burn like um like a flare that burns with such intensity um, it's called an exothermic reaction but it it burns with such ferocity like a flare that if you pour water on it at that point it will chemically separate out the elemental form of water into hydrogen and oxygen and create a explosive environment. And so you can actually cause a a much worse catastrophe when these spent fuel pool fires uh, can then explode with uh, hydrogen and oxygen finding an ignition point um and according to the national academy of sciences these can cause cancers out hundreds of miles oh.
0: yeah for me the spent fuel pool fire is my worst case uh, nuclear disaster hey paul we're going to have to um bring this interview to an end thank you so much for your time i would like to uh Thank our listeners. So you can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday of each month at 3pm Eastern. And uh, also you can continue to follow the Nature Bats last blog, GuyMcPherson.com for further updates, interviews and speaking tours. And you can keep current with my work at KevinHester.live. Thanks again to today's guest, Paul Gunday, our listeners, and to AfraZen for his music. Guy?
1: Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to Paul. We appreciate your presence very much. Thanks again to our listeners. Remember, the dominant culture can be very clever, but in the end, nature bats last.